Hello from AVA Annual Meeting 2017 in New York City. I'm Lawrence Coletti. John Furick. Matthew Diller. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. I have a special episode today. We have the show of two deans. And we're going to be talking about, of course, the ABA medal here at the ABA annual meeting 2017 in New York City. But I do have two special guests. Both are dean. Well, one's a current dean and one is a former dean, the eighth dean of the Fordham University School of Law in New York City. Welcome, gentlemen. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me to be here. So, uh, Dean Ferrick, I understand this is your, your year. You're being honored with the ABA medal, and we only recently learned about this last year. And so, it was our disappointment. I, we weren't able to connect the dots as quickly as we liked, and uh, this year, I wanted to make sure that we changed that and that we covered it. And so, I wanted to start with your career, and so we wanted to ask you some questions about that. And of course, uh, Dean uh, Diller is going to uh, answer some questions here about your career and tell us all kinds of great things about you, because we heard you're very humble and reluctant to talk, so we got a little bit of information for you, sir. So... I'm going to ask about your career, but I'm going to direct it to Dean Diller first. So let me just say, uh, I promised John that I would not embellish and I would say it straight um, and, and as it is. And what I really want to say is why it's so important to me and why so meaningful to me that John is receiving this award and is being honored because there are really few careers in American law like John's. And John has spanned so many fields and made such contributions that they deserve to be honored with this incredible recognition. And so he was uh, one of the lawyers who really helped build Skadden Arps into a great uh, national and international firm. He was the 10th lawyer hired at Skadden Arps and was a partner there for 20 years. He founded the Labor and Employment Law Practice, which is one of the great practices uh, in our country. And then he went on to serve as dean of Fordham Law School for 20 years and transformed the law school, uh, vastly expanding uh, the faculty, raising its national profile, but most important, uh, building its public service and legal ethics programs, uh, and as, as well as its human rights program and putting the values of the institution really at the forefront. Uh, beyond, But to just say that is only to scratch the surface, as I think you'll hear. John is one of the few people with us today who is actually responsible and one of those responsible for authoring a portion of our Constitution. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary of the adoption of the 25th Amendment, and John played a critical role uh, in the both the idea behind the amendment and its enactment, uh, and I'm sure you'll want to want to talk about that more, and has played a role in in public life that uh, we can only begin to scratch the surface. He was chair in the 1980s of the uh, New York State uh, Commission on Government Integrity, known as the Fear Commission, which produced groundbreaking recommendations in the field of campaign finance reform and government ethics. You should stop me because I can go on. And actually, I'm going to say one more thing on this, which is Absolutely. not to list one of your accomplishments. But when I said said it's a really great moment to honor John, it's not simply because it's the 50th anniversary of the 25th Amendment, but because John's career has always stood for one thing, first and foremost, in my mind, uh, and that's really putting values first, uh, and really the values of care for others, concern for fellow citizens, empathy 
for one another and the ability to listen that I think John just excels at and has a unique experience being able to empathize and understand where people are coming from. And to me, that is in precious short supply in our society today, in our public dialogue. So that particular value, those values of John, uh, empathy, ability to listen, ability to cross bridges and build bridges, to solve problems with non-zero-sum solutions, to me, that's what John is about. And that's what, frankly, we need so much in the world today. Well, I think that, that uh, all of those qualities go uh, very well, part and parcel, hand in hand with uh, recipients of the ABA medal. So congratulations, sir, and thank you for your service. Thank you. So I would be remiss in my duties as a podcasting host, especially one at Legal Talk Network, if we did not talk about the 25th Amendment. I've, this is the first person I've met that's been part of drafting uh, any part of the Constitution. And so I wanted to reach out to you. And, and this is uh, the 25th Amendment, for those of us that aren't as familiar, uh, it has to do with presidents and vice presidents' succession in certain scenarios. So would you mind sharing, us, uh, sharing with us your work on the 25th Amendment? The uh, 25th Amendment deals with the disability of the President of the United States. Uh, enabling the president to uh, declare his own disability. And uh, it also sets up a process for dealing with uh, a situation where the president might be unconscious and, and given the power to the vice president and a majority of the cabinet to uh, declare the president disabled, in which, which event the vice president becomes the acting president until the president recovers. And it also deals with filling a vacancy in the vice presidency. And we had no provision in the Constitution to deal with that until the 25th Amendment was adopted in 1967. So disability of a president and, uh, and filling a vacancy in the vice presidency. And uh, that, that, that's what the amendment deals with. And the amendment, uh, as I've written about it and as I've spoken about it, has an evolution since about 1881. And, uh, and different ideas uh, were presented in 1881 uh, upon the assassination of uh, President Garfield. And, and President, uh, uh, the new president, uh, uh, Chester Arthur, who was a New Yorker, he called on Congress to deal with a lot of ambiguities surrounding the uh, succession provision of the Constitution. And we went at it right through the Eisenhower years, had to deal with uh, Wilson's uh, stroke and, uh, and the ambiguities in the Constitution restrained vice presidents from acting as presidents in, in, in the case of inability of a president. And uh, Eisenhower had disabilities. And so we, I came into the uh, Kennedy years as president, and there were many ideas around. There had been uh, a lot of proposals, uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, hearings. And President Eisenhower and Richard Nixon developed uh, informal protocols uh, if, if another disability arose in the Eisenhower administration. Eisenhower was very upset that Congress didn't uh, clear it up. And so they were going to develop their own protocols. So uh, Kennedy was assassinated, and, uh, and the whole subject of uh, inability arose again. And, uh, and uh, questions were raised. What if he had uh, survived? How would we have dealt with uh, his disability? What would be the status of the vice president uh, during the disability? Uh, would the vice president take over for the rest of the term? What if the president uh, came, uh, recovered before the end of his term? So all those ambiguities surrounded that part of the Constitution. Also, Johnson had become uh, the president and uh, uh, in accordance with precedent that had been set. And you had no vice president. And you had uh, uh, a speaker who was uh, uh, fairly senior in years. Uh, and you had a, a um, president pro tem who was very senior in years. 
And so the gap in the vice presidency uh, manifested itself. Uh, I happen to have spent uh, previous uh, two and a half years uh, uh, writing about the subject for a law review article while I practiced law at, uh, for the Scadden firm. And, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, with Kennedy's assassination, uh, my article uh, was talked about in a column of the New York Times on November 24, Arthur Crock wrote. And as I was sort of dealing with the tragedy of my hero, John Kennedy, I was starting to get requests uh, for copies of the article, help, uh, I think it was CBS was doing a show on presidential succession, and, and then the ABA decided to give uh, major leadership to it, and they invited me, because of my, really my writing, uh, to participate with a group of 11 other people, uh, most of whom were senior members of the profession, uh, president of the ABA, Lewis Powell, who was the president-elect of the, of the ABA, Herbert Brennell, who was the former Attorney General of the United States under uh, Eisenhower, and number uh, Ed Wright, uh, who be the president of the uh, of the ABA, Ross Malone, as general counsel of the uh, General Motors, as I recall at the time. And so uh, I found myself sitting in a room at the Mayflower Hotel in January of uh, 1964 uh, with the group I mentioned, and also Paul Freund, who was a great, great best in the country, I thought, on the Constitution at that time at Harvard Law School. Birch Bayh came, a young senator from Indiana, uh, as, as a guest. And we sat around for a, a, a day and a half talking about how, how to deal with the uh, disability of a president and filling a vacancy in vice presidency. We had all these proposals. My article had been distributed to uh, everybody uh, in the group, uh, which really laid out uh, a lot of history of the problem. And then we had a series of recommendations at the end of, uh, of that two-day period. And uh, those recommendations became uh, unique in that uh, while there were a lot of provisions in the recommendations you could find in the proposals and find in the Eisenhower-Nixon protocols, the American Bar Association decided that we're really going to make a, an effort to uh, see if we can make this happen, uh, this idea of since 1881, to clear up the Constitution, uh, we, we're going to invest all our energy. We're going to create a Young Lawyers Committee. I was asked to chair the Young Lawyers Committee. I had a Senior Lawyers Committee that Herb Brownell was chair of. I had an advisory committee to both, in a sense. I was a member of that. And the Washington office of the ABA was phenomenal. They just had, it had just a few people, but all together, lawyers all over America, senior lawyers, young lawyers, we came together and Without technology as today, uh, through fax machines, through telephone communications, through uh, special delivery letters, and we put a lot of pressure on the members of Congress from our respective states. And uh, one member of Congress, uh, Harry Byrd, said to Senator Bay, I've never had so many lawyers communicate with me about anything. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I was astonished to see the, the process uh, uh, end up with a, a, a two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress, and then a year and a half later, it went in the Constitution, ratified by three-fourths of the states. Yeah, I just want to add, uh, I, of course, was not there for this history, which is now part of the history of our Constitution. But I did want to add one other perspective of, of looking at it, which is, I think, also fascinating, uh, is it was a great, as John said, it was a great uh, moment for lawyers and the legal profession and the ABA coming together to improve our Constitution. But also, uh, remember that John was two years out of law school. 
uh, when he wrote the article that was the subject, uh, the basis for all this discussion. And uh, he was a young associate at a 10-person law firm in, in New York. And it, he grew up in the Bronx uh, from an immig immigrant parents. He went to Fordham College and Fordham Law School. And it's a great testament to what people can accomplish and the change that you can make even at a young age. Uh, so to have that presence of mind, that strength of conviction, to even as a 27-year-old lawyer write an article that can help set in motion this process that led to a change in our Constitution is in itself remarkable to me. Well, Dean Diller, that is a great segue into my next question. I have a special surprise for you guys. Uh, I was, uh, we were interviewing President Linda Klein. She, of course, is the uh, American Bar Association president. And uh, she actually asked a special question of you, Dean Furyk. And so we're going to go ahead and play that. And then I want to get your answer on the other side of it. So if I could ask Dean Furyk one question, I would ask him what it was like to be a young lawyer working with senior legal minds like Lewis Powell when he was president-elect of the American Bar Association before he became a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court and the former attorney general in the Eisenhower administration when in the early 60s they crafted the 25th Amendment. And so, Dean Furyk, what's your answer? I was awed by uh, those in the group, but they immediately made uh, me, certainly, and it wasn't directed to me, but they made you feel uh, you were one of them. And, and President Wally Craig, he was the president of the ABA from Arizona. He made sure that uh, what anybody wanted to say, what anybody wanted to talk about, uh, was able to do so. Before that day was out, I felt that everyone in that room had become my friend. And, uh, and while I was a young lawyer, uh, they all knew I, I had written the article. It was the first, uh, they had a handout for the whole group. And, and my article was the first uh, handout to, to be read by the group if they uh, were preparing for the meetings. So uh, I was accepted as if uh, I was one of them. And uh, that could be helpful with the knowledge uh, I had acquired on the subject. So what did it feel like? Uh, they became lifelong friends. Wow. So that experience, uh, you know, being trusted and being welcomed into a group of senior attorneys who have a lot more experience at that point yeah. in your life, uh, did that pave the way for you to, be, to become an educator? It really affected the rest of my life, uh, to be frank with you. It gave me uh, a degree of prominence, which I had to deal with. I'm a basically quiet guy, and uh, it produced other, other opportunities. I was asked and before the amendment was ratified, uh, to be the uh, advisor to the, the ABA Commission on Electoral College Reform. I ended up, because of the relationship I had developed with the ABA staff, they were asking me to, to, uh, to do other things. And so that profoundly changed my life. And I look back, uh, I used to testify uh, before Congress on these subjects. On behalf of the ABA, I dealt with the committees of Congress, uh, members and members of the, both houses, and members of the staff. And I realized uh, an early dream I had of some, uh, sometimes getting involved in elective politics uh, had disappeared. I saw, as the rest of my life, involvement in law reform, in causes, and, uh, and trying to make, uh, make things better. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. I have one last question for you, and this is kind of a fun question for you, Dean Ferrick. So we heard uh, today when we were uh, interviewing somebody that uh, you had commissioned a bunch of portraits to be taken at uh, the Fordham University School of Law. 
and the artist apparently wanted to do your uh, portrait and you would refuse and kind of avoid him. And eventually he started following you around, trying to remember what you look like, who's going to paint from memory and eventually presented the picture uh, to you. And you never wanted it hung on the wall. And I guess apparently it's found its way to the uh, to the halls. And so I just wanted to ask as a matter of curiosity, what was it that you didn't, uh, what was the reason for not wanting your own portrait as part of that group? I was dean of the law school in about 1990, 91. There was a graduate of school who wanted to commission my portrait. Uh, I, I, I said no. Uh, unknown to me, the school went ahead through uh, Professor Perillo of the school, and, uh, and he presented me, uh, and I was shocked by it, uh, with the portrait. We were putting up portraits of, uh, of, uh, of graduates of the school, of former professors of the school at the time, and it was incomprehensible to me uh, when I was in a job that, uh, and being dean of a law school to have a portrait. I thought a portrait comes when you die or <laughs> when you've retired. And uh, I, I was graceful because a graduate had spent eight or $9,000 on the portrait. I thanked him and then asked the assistant dean at the school to put it away and not to, and not to, not to bring it out again. And, and if school wanted to do something after I had left as dean or if something happened to me, it was up to the school. But I never wanted to see it uh, displayed during my tenure. And then I, I no longer was dean. And dean trainer of Georgetown Law School was now the dean, uh, dean of Fordham at the time. And he sent emissaries to see me about having it uh, put up. I said no. And I said, I, I'd rather, I don't think I should be around when my portrait goes up. I think I should be gone. And you felt strongly about that? Well, I, very strongly. I, I, I said no twice to dean trainer. And then what happened was, in the last year we were at the old building where I had devoted my years, uh, it came up again. And it came up in a different context. Somebody wanted to do a portrait of Dean Trainer, And I knew that it would be hard for him to put up his portrait if mine wasn't up there. And I thought at that point, uh, there were two influences on me. I thought that's being selfish on my part. I shouldn't do that. And number two... Uh, we were leaving the building where I put so many years of my life in. And I felt, well, I'll be the last portrait in the old building. The president said, what about the new building? Not the new building, just put the portrait up <laughs> in the old building. And, and, and then they moved it over to the new building. So let me just add, uh, I was there at the event where the portrait was unveiled. Uh, it was, of course, by then 20 years old. Uh, and... Uh, everyone recognized it as a rare, rare occasion uh, where John Furick would allow himself to be honored. Uh, and the room was not only packed in standing room only, uh, but the room out the hallway outside and the atrium outside was packed. And the school was jammed with hundreds upon hundreds of people who had come back for the event and to really to thank John. And I would just say I invite all of the listeners out there to come and see the portrait themselves, <laughs> which now hangs outside my office, uh, the dean's office at Fordham Law School. It's a lovely, lovely likeness of John. Are you locking it up uh, so that Dean Furyk doesn't take it down? No. It, it, bears, it bears no resemblance to me today. <laughs> there was one, uh, a portrait when I was 45, or, or uh, maybe a little more than 45. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it is said that uh, uh, there's a time you believe in Santa Claus. There's a, there's a time that uh, uh, you don't believe in Santa Claus. There's, there's, there's an, another time where you are Santa Claus for your children. 
And then there's a time when you're Santa Claus. <laughs> you look like Santa Claus. And that's where I am now. <laughs> well, thank you so much, you guys, for stopping by. I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, obviously we're running out of uh, time for today's episode. But thank uh, you. before we signed off, I wanted to get some contact information. If our listeners want to follow up on what they've heard today or want to reach out to you personally, how can they find you? I'm a professor at Fordham Law School. Uh, right here in New York. And I'm the dean at Fordham Law School, and uh, we're both, you can find us both on the Fordham Law School website. We'll have email information and phone information. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our guests for joining us today, and I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you've heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So much, you nice, guys. nice to meet you. That was yeah. wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Thank you. And, um, uh, I was glad I was there, but also, I don't think I've heard you tell, tell, tell it in that way. It was very moving. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. <laughs>